Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 145. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great of mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray together. Be nigh at hand, O Lord, to all that call upon thee, and fulfill the desire of them that fear thee. Lift up them that fall, and support them that are cast down, that we who are falling headlong into death may arise safely by the power of Christ's resurrection. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who is holy in all his works. Glory be to the Son, the hand of the Father, which he openeth, to fill all things living with blessing. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the blessing wherewith they are filled as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. We continue on through Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we come now to question eight. So let's read this together. It's on page five of your bulletin. Question eight asks, how doth God execute his decrees? Answer, God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. When we considered... Uh, Question 7, we learn that the decrees of God are his eternal and sovereign plan to glorify himself. We saw that this plan encompasses everything that ever happens without exception. From the hurricanes that swirl about on far and distant planets, to the worm that wiggles about in the mud, to the salvation and damnation of the elect and reprobate, God is the one who, as it says in Ephesians 1.11, works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that was question seven. And here now in question eight, we, we consider how God executes that eternal plan. How does God execute that eternal plan to glorify himself? Well, the catechism summarizes this carrying out of God's decrees under two distinct headings here. And you can see they are, number one, creation, and two, 
providence. In order to execute his eternal plan, God creates and then God preserves and governs what he creates. In future weeks, we will see how the catechism defines creation and defines providence. But for now, let us just appreciate that under these two headings, creation and providence, we can place everything that ever happens in time and space and history. Contrary to many philosophers, the world has not always been. The world is not eternal. Hebrews 11.3 teaches us that everything that is had a real beginning that God spoke into existence by his word. This means that nothing exists outside of God. There is nothing outside of God. And all things that exist only exist by participation in his being. As it says in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And in Acts 17.28, in him we live and move and have our being. And again in Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. All things are from God insofar as he is their maker. All things are through God insofar as he gives them their power and forms them through wisdom. And all things are to God insofar as he orders, preserves, and brings everything to a good and righteous end. This sovereign goodness of God cannot be escaped despite man's many attempts to do so. What God would rather have us do, and what he commands us to in his word, is that we surrender and embrace, uh, uh, surrender to and embrace him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what faith does when it learns of God's decrees. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. These are the words of God. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse when she had heard of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, 
Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him, and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. While he had spake, there came from the, house of the, from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and waileth greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. And when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and saith unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this revelation of your desire to heal and touch and raise to new life those who have been polluted by sin. As we consider this scene in the life of Christ, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth, and that by apprehending the truth, we might attain to true freedom. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. Well, this morning we consider two more miracles from the hands of Jesus, both of which continue to reveal his divine identity. Last time we saw that Jesus went out of his way to sail across the Sea of Galilee through a storm which he calms in order to bring salvation to a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And what we want to do as we come to these miracle stories like this is to remember that while these are real historical events, they are also at the same time what we might call living parables, which if understood and interpreted rightly, will reveal to us greater mysteries and realities about the kingdom of heaven and especially who this Jesus is. We've seen that Mark has purposely organized these stories in such a way that if we know how to interpret Jesus' parables and teaching, then we will know how to interpret Jesus' miracles and actions. And we said that the best method for interpreting a sign or a parable is to first look back at the Old Testament and see what those signs and realities meant there. And because scripture has one divine author, we should expect there to be unity, a unity of thought between Old and New Testaments, between what God did in ages past and what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. Now, uh, in our text this morning, we have what might appear at first glance to be a pretty straightforward, simple story of a healing and then a, resu a resurrection. 
But uh, Mark includes certain details in this story which suggests that there's actually a lot more going on here, that this is a sort of riddle and a parable within this story. I'll give you a few examples of these details. Um, If you noticed in Mark's gospel, it's rare that he ever gives us the name of someone who is healed. So, so far we've met people like the paralytic, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, the leper, the demon-possessed man. We're not given their proper names. They are named typically by their affliction or their relation to someone else. And so also here in this text, what is the name of the, the little girl? I don't know. She's just the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. What is the name of the woman? Her name is woman with a flow of blood. And so for Mark to give us the name of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, but not the names of anyone else is a bit odd. What is going on here? There are also some curious similarities between Jairus's dead daughter and the woman with the flow of of blood. Uh, We are told in verse 25 that the woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. And then in verse 42, we are told that the age of Jairus's daughter was 12 years. Why tell us this? What is significant about the number 12? What is significant about uh, the fact that this woman has been sick or began to be sick when this girl was born? Why include this detail but not their names? There is also a question about the order in which these two healings happen. So Jesus is on his way to resurrect Jairus' daughter when he is interrupted and touched by the woman with the flow of blood. What is it about this healing that compares and contrasts with the girl's resurrection? We've seen Mark use this kind of sandwich structure before. He gives us the beginning of a story, interrupts it with another story, and then concludes that original story. He's doing that here. Why? What does he want us to learn about this sequence of healings? It is those kinds of details that should provoke you to read this story almost at two levels. First, there is the kind of obvious literal historical level level of the story, uh, these miraculous healings. But then there is what those literal historical events themselves signify. We do this with the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is a real historical truth. And you can actually believe in that real historical truth without believing all the rest of the contents of the Christian faith. It's what the meaning of Christ's resurrection signifies, the the reality signified by his resurrection that God wants Christians to apprehend. So you look at the resurrection, but also to what the resurrection means. And so the Gospels give us the historical events that happen, and then you can see the theology of Paul and Peter and the rest of the letters reflecting on the meaning of the cross and resurrection. So that's what we get a chance to do here. Uh, if you remember the parables, we, we see Jesus talking about seed and soil and lamps. And so he said, what do seed, soil, and lamps mean in the Old Testament? Well, uh, you should do the same thing now as we come to these miracles. What is uh, a daughter? What is 12 years? What is significant about these things? So um, as we walk through this text together... I want you to keep an eye out for what we call, uh, in theology, the spiritual sense of the text. So there's a literal sense to the text, and then based on that uh, literal reality, you can then conclude what is the the spiritual significance of those things. So uh, let me begin by giving you the the basic division of the text. 
Uh, there are three basic movements to this story. And as I said, they form this kind of sandwich structure that, Paul, uh, that Mark likes to use. So in verses 21 to 24, we have Jairus pleading for Jesus to heal his daughter. Jesus agrees and goes with him. Then in verses 25 to 34, they are interrupted as the woman touches Jesus' garment and is miraculously healed. And then in verses 35 to 43, we resume that original journey and Jesus arrives and resurrects Jairus' daughter. So you've got first a plea for healing, the healing of someone else, and then the resurrection of the dead daughter. That's the general flow. So uh, starting in verse 21, let's walk through this text together. It says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. Uh, Jesus is likely returning now to Capernaum after his detour to uh, that pig-infested region of the Decapolis, that Gentile territory. And Mark wants us to know here that Jesus is still nigh unto the sea. He is continuing to minister along the seashore. Already we have seen that the sea is associated with the Gentile nations, and the sand on the seashore signifies Abraham's offspring or Abraham's seed. And there are echoes here of God's promise in Isaiah 60 verse 5. Uh, there uh, Isaiah says, The abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. So God had promised long ago that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is, of course, that seed. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David, who brings God's kingdom into the world. The abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto him. And this is what we are seeing happen in Mark's gospel. We also remember that when Jesus called the first four disciples to leave their nets and follow him, the first four disciples were fishermen, he said that, I'm going to make you into fishers of men. Well, if you look at these first five chapters of Mark, this is what Jesus has been doing. He's been preaching and teaching from inside a boat. He's going from city to city, port to port, just like a fisherman would. Jesus is going there, preaching and catching the souls of men. So he's teaching the disciples. He's making good on what he told them he was going to teach them to do. So that is the scene here. Mark wants us to know this still, that Jesus is still nigh unto the sea. Uh, verses 22 to 23. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed, and she shall live. Notice first that this Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. Um, he's roughly equivalent to what you would call uh, kind of a ruling elder in the Presbyterian church. So uh, he's probably not a Levitical priest. He's probably not an ordained minister. But he is a man of prominence with responsibility and authority in the synagogue. Uh, this name, Jairus, is a Hebrew name. It comes from uh, this Hebrew word, Yair, and means something like enlightened one, or he who gives light, or he who awakens. And uh, if, if, you, uh, uh, if you were to learn Hebrew, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do, you know, when you want to retire, is learn Hebrew, take up Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew is this really cool language because there is wordplay always going on where God is going to, uh, where people's names really mean 
who they are. And then there's going to be wordplay with their name in almost every single story. You're going to find this all through the Hebrew Bible. Names are a really big deal. The names of places are a really big deal. And so it's interesting that this is the one name we're given in this story, and it's a Hebrew name, and this is what it means. And so there's kind of this irony that Mark weaves through all his gospel. Uh, there's this irony here that the man whose name is Enlightened One or Awakened One has this daughter who Jesus says later is not dead, but asleep. So, and that's a curious saying, which we'll get to at the end. So, in other words, if Jairus, the enlightened one, has death, the sleeping daughter, uh, what does that say about his light? What does that say about him? This is also reflective on the spiritual state of the Jewish people and their synagogue. Already we have seen that the synagogues are places that are infested with demons, They are full of people who are sick and suffering the curses of God's covenant. And so there is a parallel here between Jairus' daughter, which he says lies at the point of death, and the synagogues, which, as we have seen, are on life support. And so Jairus falls at Jesus' feet and begs him, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. All throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zephaniah, etc., God calls his people by the name Daughter Zion. Daughter Zion. This is the name that God gives to them as they are suffering judgment and exile for their sins. The entire book of Lamentations is a weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem under this name, Daughter Zion. And if you were to summarize all the prophecies about daughter Zion in the Old Testament, and there are many, many of them, they would essentially boil down to this. Uh, daughter Zion is going to be punished for her sins. Uh, she is going to suffer judgment. She's, she's actually going to die. But God is going to resurrect her. God is going to remove the uncleanness of her idolatry and make her a glorious city again. I'll give you just a couple samples of these prophecies. This is Isaiah 62, 11. It says, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 15, likewise says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Well, here is the fulfillment. Here is Jesus, the King of Israel, the Lord God in their midst. And what does Jairus ask him to do? To touch his daughter, who is at the point of death, and heal her. This is, of course, in the first instance, a desperate cry from a father for the life of his beloved daughter. But it is also at the same time that this daughter is representative of Jerusalem, of Israel, of daughter Zion, who likewise lies at the point of death. And only the king of Israel can raise her up. So what does Jesus do? Verse 24. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. 
Again, we see here that the crowds follow Jesus wherever he goes. And then in verse 25, we have an interruption to his mission to heal Jairus' daughter. And spiritually speaking, we would say there is a delay in the healing of daughter Zion. We might ask, what is this delay for? Verses 25 to 28. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. According to the laws of Leviticus, a woman with a flow of blood was in the same unclean state as the leper. And what this meant was exclusion from the congregation. It would mean if it's your time of the month, you can't come to church. This meant exclusion from the temple and its worship. It meant exclusion from anyone else who wanted to go to church because if you touched that woman who had a flow of blood, it made you unclean. Leviticus 15, 25 to 27 says this, And if a woman have an issue of her blood many days out of the time of her separation, or if it run beyond the time of her separation, separation is just her time of the month, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation. She shall be unclean. Every bed whereon she lieth all the days of her issue shall be unto her as the bed of her separation. And whatsoever she sitteth upon shall be unclean, as the uncleanness of her separation. And whosoever toucheth, toucheth those things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. Now, uh, we should all know uh, this is not a sinful state, that the woman during uh, her menstrual cycle is not allowed to go to church, that she's unclean. God is wanting to teach the people of Israel by these signs that there is something inside of you that is polluted and corrupt, right? The, the point of this is there's stuff that comes out of you that is evil, wicked, right? Men have this. So if you had what it calls a nocturnal emission, uh, you are unclean. So there are all these things. If it, if it comes out of you, uh, it's probably going to make you unclean. God wants to teach you something uh, about yourself from this. And that is what he is teaching in Leviticus. So this was a woman who for 12 long years has suffered in uncleanness. She is essentially excommunicated just because of this affliction that she suffers. She has been forced to live as an exile from the holy city of Jerusalem because she's unclean. And therefore, she's really no different from a Gentile. Her state of uncleanness has separated her from God, and despite her best attempts to find healing from the hands of many physicians, it has only made her worse. And now she has spent all that she had. Like the leper, and like the man possessed by a legion of demons, this woman is utterly destitute. But verse 27 says, she had heard of Jesus. She had heard of Jesus. We know from Jesus' previous miracles that the word has gotten out. We saw last time that the demoniac was sent home so that he could publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. That was verse 20, right before this story we are given. Who knows, perhaps this woman was one of those people who heard. However it is that she heard of Jesus, this woman reasons that 
if Jesus has touched unclean lepers, if he has power over legions of demons, he's not afraid to go to the region of the Gadarenes, then perhaps he can do something for her. And so she reasons in herself in verse 28, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Here, we have a point of contrast with Jairus, the enlightened one. You think about this, these two people. Who in this scene has greater faith? The ruling elder of the synagogue or the destitute woman? Jairus asks asks Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter so that she will be healed. That is about as far as his faith extends. But this woman believes that if if she just touches his garments, just his clothes, that she will be made whole. Perhaps we are reminded here of that scene in Matthew 8 where a Roman centurion says to Jesus that, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, but if you will just say the word, I know that my servant will be healed. Jesus sees that Gentile centurion and marvels and says, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This is, uh, the Gospels are very offensive to Jews. Right? This is why it's called by Paul a stumbling block to the Jews. Because you read straight off in Matthew, again in Mark, you'll see it in Luke, you'll see it in John, that who are the people who are believing? Who are the people of great faith? In Mark's gospel, who is the person with the greatest of faith? It's going to be the Roman centurion who says, when Jesus is crucified, truly this is the Son of God. So these confessions of faith are put upon the mouths of Gentiles by these Jewish gospel writers for a reason. Because they remember all the prophets of the Old Testament. There's There's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament. And the promise was that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. And here, we see a a glimmer of that here. The places and people where you expect to find great faith, the church, the synagogue, where Jairus is, those places are haunts for demons. But here in this woman who's been exiled from the people of God is great faith. Jairus requires Jesus to come to his house and touch his daughter, but this woman presses her way through the crowd, something that sort of violates the the ceremonial law, right? She's getting all these people unclean just by touching them. And yet in this great act of faith, touches only his garment, his wing, and she believes that touching the mere outskirts of Jesus will heal her. Well, what happens? Verses 29 to 33. And straightway, immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Notice that Jesus' power is not magically or locally contained in his clothes, right? Uh, There are people who are very superstitious about relics of the saints or the cloak of Jesus. Well, there is no magical power contained in his garments. You can see there's many people pressing against him, touching him, and nothing happens to them. But when this woman, 
reaches out in faith. It says, virtue or power went out of him. And Jesus takes notice. Jesus then turns and asks, who touched me? Not because he is ignorant of what had happened any more than God was ignorant when he asked Adam and Eve, oh, where are you? Right? J Jesus knows. But Jesus asks this question to give her an opportunity to testify and to bless her even further. Verse 34. And he said unto her, daughter, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Jesus commends this woman for her faith. And just as he has brought peace to the storm and peace to the demoniac, now he speaks peace to this unclean and destitute woman. But notice, most of all, what is the name that he calls her by? He calls her daughter. First, we had Jairus's daughter, who Jesus was en route to heal. But before he gets to her, before he restores daughter Zion, he adopts this woman of great faith. And she becomes a part of his family. Jesus adopts her and calls her daughter. Who does Jesus adopt into his family? Anyone with faith. Those who want to have God as their father in heaven. And what is the lesson that Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples all through this? What did he just say to them back in the boat? He said, why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Well, here is true and living faith. And it is found not in a disciple, not in a ruler of the synagogue, but in an unclean woman who has been in exile for 12 years. <clears throat> the church fathers recognized in this woman a symbol of the Gentiles. Just as she had spent all that she had on physicians, but was only made worse, so also the Gentile nations had tried everything, worshiping idols, worshiping demons, studying the stars, writing epic poetry, developing philosophy, and yet none of those physicians could save their civilization. They could not save their soul. They were looking for a savior. And so Christ comes into this woman's life when? In the 12th year. In the 12th year. Or as Paul says in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And before daughter Zion, the holy city of Jerusalem, can be resurrected, the gospel must first go to the Gentiles, to the nations, to those who have been polluted and made unclean by the blood of their idolatry and wickedness. Before daughter Zion can be restored, God is going to adopt Gentiles like you and me into his family. As it says of Jesus in John 1, 11 to 12, he came unto his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This order and sequence of these two daughters being healed is a picture of exactly what Paul says in Romans 11. He says there, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. In other words, God uses the Jews' rejection and crucifixion of Christ 
to bring about the salvation of the world. And then when the Jews see the Gentiles experiencing the blessings of God's covenant, they will be made jealous and will want back in. That is how God plans to save all Israel, provoking the Jews to jealousy by saving Gentiles. And then they say, oh, we want that too. Romans 11, 11 to 12 explains this further, saying, I say then, have they, the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Jesus is foreshadowing by the healing of these two daughters what Paul calls in Ephesians 3, the great mystery of the gospel. What is that mystery? It's that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's Ephesians 3. That's the mystery. And here's the mystery in seed form. In Christ, by faith, anyone, anyone can become an adopted son or daughter of God and therefore an heir to the blessings God promised to Abraham and his seed. Jesus is that entrance into God's family, and all you must do is reach out to him by faith. You think about a great inheritance and wanting that inheritance, and the offer of the gospel to the world is that you can have everything. You can have planet Earth and the moon and the stars and the sun. You can have the entire cosmos. Paul says, we are made heirs with Christ. So that is the good news of the gospel, right? If you see it, you can have it if you trust in Christ. You will not perhaps get it in this life, but we will inherit the whole world in the end. How silly, how foolish then for us to love the fleeting things of this world that are passing away, to settle for those things at the expense of the world that is to come. Well, continuing in our story, while great salvation has come to this newly adopted daughter, what about Jairus's daughter? What about daughter Zion? Verses 35 to 36. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. Right? This is the same words he just said to his disciples back in the boat. Why are you guys so afraid? Believe. Verses 37 to 40. And Jesus suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when, and when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Uh, notice that these mourners go from weeping, weeping and wailing to laughing scornfully at Jesus in just a moment. Uh, these are likely hired mourners, professional mourners. Uh, these people that it was custom to hire when there was a death. And they likely had been at many funerals. They knew what a dead body looked like when they saw one. And so they laughed Jesus to scorn. It is interesting then that despite the girl being really physically dead, 
Jesus says she's not dead, but sleeps. What does this mean? Well, this is to say that, yes, she might be dead to you, but I am the God who kills and makes alive, Deuteronomy 32, 39. I am the God who formed man from the dust and breathed life into his nostrils. And therefore, to me, this girl is not dead, but only asleeps. And I have the power to do what Jairus could not do, enlighten her, awaken her, raise her from the dead. That is what Jesus means when he says, uh, she is not dead, but only sleeps. Verse 40 to 43. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. This is the first, this is the first resurrection that Jesus performs in Mark's gospel. And what could be more convincing of someone's divine identity that they're able to raise the dead to life? In five chapters, Mark has shown us that Jesus has the power to heal the sick of any disease. He has the power to go to war and bind Satan, the strong man, and cast out a legion of demons. He has the ability to control the weather, the winds, and the waves with his word. And now we see he has power to raise the dead to life. If you are unsure whether Jesus is God, what greater sign could you possibly need? How weak is your faith if you need something greater than this to believe that Jesus is Lord? Well, there are more signs to come. And as we will see next week, unbelief is the natural response of Jesus' own countrymen. These signs, these many signs, do not persuade them. And so I close by returning again to the faith of the woman with the flow of blood. We don't know the name of this woman, but we do know that God calls her daughter. You will meet her one day. And if you feel, or if you have felt as this woman did, that no earthly physician can heal your soul, that there is a constant flow of impurity within you that seems unstoppable, and everything you touch becomes tainted with sin, will then forsake yourself and reach out in faith to the Lord Jesus. He alone has the power to heal you and delights to make you pure. He delights to adopt those with faith into his family. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. Amen. After Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, it says, He commanded that something should be given her to eat. This meal before us is that food of resurrection. It is the nourishment offered to believers to sustain and strengthen us in our pilgrimage. To eat bread and drink wine with Jesus is a sign that we are alive in him. We cannot eat when we are sleeping, though perhaps some of you have tried. We cannot eat when we are dead. Only those who have been raised with Christ can be given food to eat. Therefore, come to this table with resurrection hope. 
Come to this table full of living faith. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Our nation is sick and decadent and dying and in desperate decline because we have forsaken the fount of living waters. We have broken faith with him. And as Christians, as a little church here in Centralia, we have the great privilege of calling our nation and our neighbors back to Christ. And so look for opportunities to tell them the good news. By faith, you can become a member of God's family. By faith, you can inherit everything. That is good news to tell people. So look for opportunities to do that this week. Uh, Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.